Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Another week of waiting for stimulus, for Brexit, and for COVID to peak. Welcome to Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Getting a vaccine that works in so short a time may be nothing short of a miracle. But now that we're on the cusp of getting it, Catherine Baker, dean of the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, says we made in another miracle to get it distributed to those who need it. It would be a Herculean task under any circumstances, but I think it's made all the more challenging by the fact that this is the same healthcare system that's going to have to be caring for lots and lots of people who still get COVID. We're gonna need to do all that we can to suppress uh, transmission of the disease during this period, and also to introduce new therapeutics. It's going to be months and months and months before everyone is vaccinated. And in that time, unfortunately, hundreds of thousands of people are going to be getting COVID. At this point, 200,000 a day. What does that require of the system? I mean, is that money? There's talk about further money coming from Congress. Is it people? Do we have enough trained personnel to actually be administering this kind of system? As you say, it's vaccines, plus it's therapeutics, plus dealing with people who have the disease. Yeah, I think it takes money, but I think you're right that people are probably going to be in the shortest supply. Right now, our healthcare system is incredibly strained just caring for the people who have COVID. So adding on the layer of distribution of a vaccine is going to be an added complication. But fortunately, the kind of training that's required to administer a vaccine is not nearly as intensive as the kind of training that's required to be qualified to care for somebody in the ICU. So the hope is that we're going to be reducing the number of people in the hospital at the same time that we're ramping up vaccine distribution. 
but we can't take our eyes off of suppressing transmission, the masking, the washing hands, the keeping distance. If we forget about those while we focus on vaccine administration, we're going to be in big trouble. I also wonder whether, as happened last spring, frankly, some of the people who are most vulnerable, most hit, are the people with the least resources to deal with it. We're talking about low-income people. We're talking about minority groups, particularly in urban centers, but also, for that matter, Native Americans. We've had disproportionate problems. These people didn't have that great a healthcare system supporting them to begin with, did they? This is compounding all sorts of disparities in our system. Of course, in healthcare, where the people with the most health vulnerabilities, such as diabetes, high blood pressure, they're the most likely to get COVID and the least likely to have access to the healthcare resources. But that's only part of it. There are also the economic disparities that line up as well. People who are least likely to be able to do their jobs from their homes are also, and, and thus more likely to be exposed to the disease, are also the ones with the biggest disease burden. And then the fewest economic resources to weather a recession that's been generated by the pandemic. So people who are losing their jobs, maybe losing their health insurance, this is all exacerbating disparities that line up for the most vulnerable population. They may also be the people least likely to take a vaccine. There is some longstanding distrust of the healthcare system that has been uh, well justified by past inequities that I think will make people differentially likely to take up a vaccine that's offered. What do you make of the team that uh, President-elect Biden has now announced? So far, the people he's announced have clearly demonstrated that they take the pandemic very seriously and that they're very concerned with addressing the inequities in the system. I think the concerted attention to the message that people receive about how to prevent transmission, the efficacy of a vaccine, as well as the focus on the economic disparities that have been exacerbated by the disease is bound to be helpful for uh, addressing some of the challenges that vulnerable populations have faced over the last months. How big a difference can they make at this point? Well, I wish that somebody had a magic wand to make all of this go away, but that is clearly just not possible. And so I think we're in under the best of circumstances for many months more of wrestling with the pandemic. My hope is that by spring, things will start to look better on the disease front and that that will enable more economic activity. I also think all along the way, to maximize economic activity, to keep businesses open, to keep people at work, paying attention to the disease helps with that. And so if we had been more consistently reducing transmission by having people keep social distance and wearing masks, we could have had a lot more economic activity without the surge that we're wrestling with right now. As an expert in this area, what worries you the most over the next two to three months? You said until we get to the spring, people are talking two or three months, it's going to get worse before it gets better. What is the thing that worries you the very most? I think it is the fatigue with the pandemic and with the restrictions that we've all been talking about so much. I think it's real. And I think that people are letting their guard down, especially around the holidays. As people focus on the coming vaccine, I worry that the spike that we're seeing is going to overwhelm the healthcare system and we're going to end up with much more loss of life and well-being than we otherwise would have had. We also don't know what the long-term consequences of COVID are. There, we're learning more about the long haulers, people who wrestle with um, symptoms of the disease or downstream consequences. 
for months afterwards, it's been around for less than a year. So we don't know what two, three, four years out looks like. So the more we can reduce the spread of the disease now, not only the more economic activity and well-being can we have now, but perhaps health consequences in the future can be averted. Thanks to Dean Catherine Baker of the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Coming up, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton on what he's accomplished during his tenure and what is left to be done. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Jay Clayton is nearing the end of his four years as chairman of the SEC, leaving behind a record number of new regulations and over $14 billion in monetary remedies. One of his goals was to reinforce the attractiveness of the public markets in raising capital. So it's only fitting that even as he counts down the days until his departure, he saw this week the remarkable IPOs of DoorDash and then Airbnb, something we asked him about even as they were happening. Well, David, in this, in this job, you always have to be active because our markets are ever active. If, if we're not modifying, updating, modernizing, as I like to say, our regulations, we're falling behind. And so you, you have to be activist. And what we've, what we've tried to do is be activists for the benefit of our Main Street investors, really getting Main Street investors better products cheaper, making sure they have better protections. And in the event that uh, our Main Street investors unfortunately fall victim uh, to fraudsters, getting them their money back as quickly as we can. Um, and in addition, trying to modernize our, our framework around the functioning of markets so that markets function efficiently um, in a modern age. And, you know, yeah, you have to be you have to be engaged to do those things. Uh, you've put down as one of your principles that really protection of the Main Street investor, as you call them. You also sometimes say long term Main Street investor. You add that in there. What can the SEC do to address the issue of long term versus short term? It's a terrific question. It's a, it's a question not just for the SEC, but, but across our economy. Um, look, markets thirst for information. They thirst for inter- information by the microsecond. So markets are always going to be focusing on short-term changes. The culture of investing for the long term is something that we need to foster uh, across our regulatory uh, infrastructure. The SEC is, is here to help with the way that we try to talk about trends 
uncertainties, opportunities, getting companies to disclose that kind of forward-looking information. I think disclosure of that type of forward-looking information helps foster a long-term attitude. But David, one thing I've learned in Washington is that is that this needs to be sort of a whole-of-government approach uh, to more long-termism uh, for, for investing. Are you concerned at all about the growth of private uh, private capital as opposed to public capital? Because there's an awful lot that's being done on the private side now that used to be done in publicly. Well, let me say this. People talk about that as a dichotomy. It's not a dichotomy. If you're a company that's, say, under, pick a number, David, 100 million, 200 million, the private markets are really your only viable source of, of growth capital. So we need to preserve that private market and foster that private market. It is part of the dynamism of America. It's part of innovation. Then you get above that $200 million valuation level. You get it up into the types of companies that you were just talking about. There, you do want to encourage those companies to become public companies for the reasons we talked about. Greater participation um, from the American retail investor. And, and that's how I look at it. David. But we need vibrant private markets up through and well above that $200 million level. It, it so contributes to the nimble nature of American capitalism. As you pursued your goal of really protecting the long-term uh, mainstream investor, one of the things you talked about was, I think you referred to as corporate hygiene. Uh, mm -hmm. One aspect of which is insider trading. And I have a very specific question because you've had to deal with a COVID uh, pandemic, which none of us ever thought we'd anticipate. And it affects your business as well. Have you seen instances of questions at least being raised about insiders perhaps selling securities in some of the companies that could benefit from vaccine or treatment? Sure, David. Look, when you have, anytime you have um, a new information environment. And COVID has certainly created a new information environment across many companies, including um, you know, most notably pharmaceutical companies. You, you have the much greater risk that there's an asymmetry of information between the company's insiders and the market more generally. And in those circumstances, you know, companies need to up their game. They need to up, up their controls to ensure that no one is taking advantage of, or I would say even be perceived to be taking advantage of that kind of information asymmetry. And now we've been very vocal about this. Follow your internal procedures. You know, have your, have your checks with your general counsel's office on whether it's appropriate to be selling stock. And then just ask yourself, does this look right or not? I mean, look, we're going to get through this, I believe. Um, you know, and if you're in it for the long term, um, now I'm not telling people you have to, but think about staying in it for the long term. Mr. Chairman, I want to look forward here just a little bit on some things that will actually come up after you've left office. And one of them is in the area of ESG. You've spoken out about that quite a few times, environmental, social, and governance, saying they're not all the same sort of thing. You refer to Kevin, Kenneth Arrow, your favorite economist in that connection. But I want to talk actually about governance, not the environmental part. The Na there's a proposal now from NASDAQ, basically, to impose some diversity requirements on boards. That's not going to come up in your tenure. But if you were giving some private advice to your successor, would you be inclined to say that's a good idea? It would be in appropriate for me to comment on it or to, or to bind in any way um, my successor. But what I do want to say is um, this is this is an area that we, we have decided at the commission we are focused on this and we've actually focused on it here at the commission. Diversity, inclusion, and opportunity and making sure that we're cognizant of it through all of our hiring decisions um, and the way we approach the marketplace. Um, and I believe that we, we've done a good job of shining a spotlight on the fact that in the asset management industry, um, you know, uh, it's not as inclusive as it should be. Uh, actually, the numbers are stark. 
And, and we need to do a better job of having our asset management industry re reflect um, uh, the diversity in our society. Uh, you sort of mentioned this obliquely just a moment ago. Is it equally important for the leadership of the SEC, wh whoever it is, to also reflect America more broadly? Look, I think, I think these types of things, uh, you, you have to have them in your mind as you're making decisions. No one who's been in a, in a diverse boardroom or a diverse decision-making body um, comes away with it without understanding that it adds, um, it enhances decision-making. It makes for better decisions. And so, of course, anybody who's forming that kind of body wants a diversity of experience and perspective. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm going to save the toughest one for last, I suspect, and that's money market fund reform, because we've heard a lot about short-term funding. We, we, there's been various attempts to try to address it. We had it as a crisis, really, I think it's fair to say, this spring again, where the Fed had to step in. We don't seem to have our arms, arms around it. I talked with Dan Trill, a former Fed uh, member recently, and he said he thinks it's up to the SEC in the next round to do that. What could be done on the short-term funding front? Well, the, you know, you... As usual, you um, you frame this in in the right way, which is, you know, the short-term funding markets and the money markets are inextricably linked. The short-term funding markets um, are different depending on the underlying instrument. So our our treasury market and there are money market treasury funds is far different from the short-term um, municipal paper market, which also has money money market funds. That was Jake Clayton, chairman of the SEC. Coming up former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor on how prospects of a recovery are affecting his business at Mollison Company. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Those who thought that if anything so horrible as the election of a Democrat should occur, the bond market would panic and gold would soar turned out to be suffering from just another superstition. That was Louis Ruckheiser on Wall Street Week back in 1992, just after Bill Clinton was elected president. Now we have a different Democrat elected to the presidency in a very different time. But once again, reports of possible adverse effects on business or the markets appear to have been greatly exaggerated, as reported by a Republican, former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, now vice chairman of Molis & Company. We have seen a dramatic resurgence of uh, M&A globally, uh, and it's been across sectors. Uh, it is, uh, in, in our view, it's been dominated by what we're calling the power middle. You know, these are the mid-market companies, the seven, $800 million to $4 $5 billion companies. Uh, things are just very active. Obviously, there's a lot of activity uh, amongst the sponsors, the private equity community, and, and really the breadth of participation has been, as you suggest, beyond just the COVID winners, uh, beyond just the digital and the tech arena. We're seeing it in the chemical arena. We're seeing it in the energy utility arena. We're seeing it in TMT. Uh, so it is broad participation. And I think the striking thing about what we're seeing is the timing um, has been a huge factor in terms of the process. And we, what we're seeing is deals get to exclusivity uh, a lot faster than what was otherwise the case. A lot of it is sort of brought about by the digital infusion of communications and the way people are interacting right now. And I also think you can attribute some of the resurgence back to the cost of capital. And the cost of capital is extremely low. We saw the Federal Reserve step in immediately after the pandemic really hit. 
Um, that's con- that effect has continued to benefit, I think, some of this activity. We are seeing a shift to uh, from stock back to cash uh, because of this and many of the deals that we're involved with. And, and on the upside for investors and, and certainly for our clients, um, what we're seeing is valuations continue to go up. And valuations that we're seeing are even exceeding those from pre-COVID level. So all of this is sort of, uh, it's, it's very interesting given the fact that we are in this unprecedented 100-year pandemic. And I, I, don't, I don't say this lightly, but I do think that for many, um, times seem to be very promising as people are looking beyond the pandemic. But there is a reality here that there are many small businesses that are really suffering. And I do think that the sort of uh, aftermath of all this may be um, continued sort of collapse in certain sectors uh, and the ability to go and restructure to try and allow folks to get back on their feet. Do you see any frothiness? I mean, as you say, the cost of capital is approaching zero as a practical matter. That's really great if you own an asset, if you want to buy an asset. Is there any sticker shock? There's no question. Valuations, and and when I speak to my partners at Mollis and Company who've been uh, in the markets a lot longer than I have in uh, in these sectors that are surging, um, you know, they do say, look, things are definitely very competitive in these deals out there. I think a lot of that has to do with the supply of capital, the the reduced cost of capital um, that's fueling the fact that money's got to go somewhere. And there's plenty of potential, I think, that people see beyond just this pandemic. You indicated earlier uh, in the economy the fact that vaccines uh, you know, are here. And uh, I do think that light is going to be at the end of the tunnel. Let's hope that we can minimize the actual human casualty and focus on the fact that we can see an economy growing again. And hopefully the policymakers in Washington will be able to wrestle with this notion of getting some of those who have been laid off from work back into the workforce. And I do think that that's going to be a big challenge given the transformation uh, that this pandemic has brought about economically. And finally, Eric, are you picking up on any concern in the C-suite about what might happen with regulation or with taxation in a Biden administration? With David, I think that's spot on. And a lot of our conversations with our client have to do with the fact of what to expect in this next Congress. Uh, clearly, there's been a sigh of relief on the taxation issue. Again, assuming the Republicans maintain control of the Senate, uh, we'll see, I think, for the rest of the two years, no significant changes in taxes when most people would expect them to go up. But there will be some regulatory actions undertaken by the Biden administration immediately, uh, very analogous to those moves made by the Trump administration in 17, the Obama administration in 09 which basically will undo the prior administration's regulations. And we'll see a real shift leftward in terms of things like the environment, the labor laws, financial institution oversight, uh, and the rest. Very briefly, uh, do you have hopes for that, uh, that uh, unicorn we've been searching for, which is, of course, infrastructure? Well, I, I, you know, I, I would hope that we could probably have some... Um, Uh, some effort to try and promote more public-private partnerships because there's so much capital on the sidelines waiting to invest in in some of the infrastructure that's needed just so desperately across our country. Uh, Again, I'll have to see whether there's going to be some agreement. Real question there is whether the Congress will reinstate earmarks. If the Congress reinstates earmarks, I think that the potential for an infrastructure bill will go up pretty dramatically. That was Eric Cantor, Vice Chairman of Molus & Company. Coming up, we wrap up the week, as we always do, with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. 
Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to wrap up the week as we do every week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, maybe the biggest story on Wall Street this week were these IPOs. We had DoorDash first, then we have Airbnb come out. Airbnb ends up with a market cap of like $100 billion, just astronomical numbers. What is that telling us about our economy as well as our financial system? Look, uh The fact that we're creating these very valuable, terrific companies says something very special about American capitalism, and that's a strength. The process, coveted shares of IPOs popping by $70 a share, people getting rich very quick, flipping uh, the stock, uh, that's a travesty. That's why people don't like the morality of our financial services industry and This kind of Gilded Age stuff in the midst of COVID, when children in our country are going hungry, when mothers aren't able to take care of their kids and support uh, their families, this is a symptom of terrible excess. And I hope that those who support entrepreneurship will want to have a much better process than the process... uh, we have today. It's a very unseemly and ugly spectacle what we're watching, even if it is surrounding really impressive achievements in the form of companies like Airbnb and DoorDash. So so you make a really powerful point. I mean, there's a moral point to be sure, but is there also an economic point? Because even as we're watching Congress take us up to something about fiscal cliff here, with millions of Americans potentially losing unemployment and other benefits, you have those people who are worried about putting food on the table, a roof on their heads, and then you have this enormous wealth being created. You referred to the Gilded Age. What does that do sure, to our economic sure growth is, then? Sure there is, David. I, I have enormous uh, respect for uh, Hank Paulson, and I think he served the country in really great uh, ways. But when on the very day this was happening, He called for making strengthening America's financial services sector some kind of major priority. And he implicitly advocated cutting back people's social security benefits in the name of fiscal discipline and calling for uh, entitlement uh, uh, controls and the rhetoric of long-term fiscal discipline. I thought to myself, uh, 
there I cannot uh, go. That what we are witnessing is a kind of financial sector hypertrophy that I think is very dangerous and that really demands a lot of soul searching. Um, again, I'm all for venture capital. I have all for the entrepreneurial companies, but selling something for $70 and enabling people to flip it at $140, that I think is appalling. How much of this is a result of the Federal Reserve as a practical matter? Because there's so much liquidity in the marketplace. I mean, certainly I that's sustaining an awful lot of these valuations. I think there are questions you can ask about the long-term valuations, but the fact that the stock was sold at $68 and then immediately jumped to $140, making those who were lucky enough to get access billions of dollars, that error has nothing to do with liquidity. That has to do with the way our Wall Street is organized, and that ought to be a priority for somebody to clean up. Uh, Larry, you referred to the Gilded Age. One of the phenomena of the Gilded Age, as I recall, is there was no income tax. In fact, they had to amend the Constitution, I think, in order to have an income tax. We have an income tax now, but you actually have written about, and now you've tweeted about, the fact that we don't collect the taxes that were owed. $7 trillion that is owed won't be collected over the next decade. It'll be disproportionately among people at the high end. And I have to say, it's a warped set of social values that lead us to audit at higher rates in African-American areas of Mississippi, where people get the EITC, than in the richest zip codes on uh, Park Avenue. The idea that you're more likely to get audited if you're collecting the earned income uh, tax credit than if you're collecting uh, carried interest has something uh, very badly wrong with it. My hope would be that the new administration will immediately reallocate resources within the IRS, which is its prerogative, that over time, we will get the IRS back to some level of effort like the one it had a generation ago so that we can keep up with uh, these inequities. Look, this is not some kind of partisan progressive toot. Uh, Charlie Rosati, who was uh, the commissioner of uh, the IRS, who's a lifelong uh, Republican, uh, he is right there that it is scandalous, the things we are not doing that could collect substantial uh, taxes. I really hope this is something that Secretary Yellen and her colleagues will move uh, very aggressively on because it's a real injustice and it's a symbol of deeper and more profound injustices in our society. Well, in the piece that you wrote with Mr. Rosati, uh, actually pointed out that it would be a smart investment for a relatively modest increase in the, in the resources available to the IRS, we would get something like tenfold. We're going to bring ten. This is, this, is, this is easy. If you have one more auditing hour directed at high-income people, that will raise $4,500, according to the IRS's estimates, without taking account of uh, the deterrence uh, effects. 
And I can assure you that no IRS agent is paid anything like $4,500 an hour. Frankly, they're not paid anything like $450 um, an hour. So this is a terrific investment. It is standing up for the law, the rule of law. And I hope some of the voices in our country that are concerned with getting tough on crime could think about these crimes among others. Why haven't we done it already? Is this, is this political? I mean, you were Secretary of Treasury and then you were in the Obama White House. Was this a problem then or is this a reasonably recent phenomenon? This is a longstanding, this is a, this is a longstanding problem and one that in my Treasury we worked uh, very hard on, on a whole variety of things, strengthening the IRS uh, computer systems uh, in particular. And that President Obama and his team pushed while I was in the White House. Part of it is a myopia on the part of the way we calculate budgets, where you don't get any credit for the revenue benefit from the investment. And so it looks just like a cost, even though it's a major revenue item. It's like trying to run McDonald's and not giving yourself any credit for revenue from selling uh, milkshakes. Well, it'll cause you to stop selling milkshakes, but it doesn't really make uh, any sense. It's that kind of scorekeeping error. And um, let's be honest, uh, there's some people who don't want the tax law enforced because they don't want to pay what they owe and they don't want to face the possibility of being audited. And we've got too many Congress people who see their job as working for those scoff laws. So let's wrap it up with a rapid fire round, as Summer says. Let's start off. We're beginning to see the economic team around President-elect Biden. You know these people. Pick one that will turn out to be a real star. It's a great team. It's a great team across the board. I think my uh, old colleague, uh, Brian Deese, is going to be much better known a year from now than he is today. And that he's going to be a driving force behind much more effective and much more green economic policies in our country. Okay, Brian Deese, we'll keep our eyes on him. Uh, okay, give us a n- number now for U.S. GDP growth in 2021. What do you think? What's the percentage growth will have? Because right now, economists are saying so it's going to be a rough first half of the year. Then we'll come back in all likelihood because of the vaccine. I think between the vaccine and between the fact that there's a lot of pent up savings from the money people couldn't spend, I'm an optimist. I think we're going to have a good year in the 5% range. Oh, good. That's, that is good news. Okay. And bring it back to New York City, uh, right here where we are right now. Uh, when will be the date? that the New York City economy returns to where it was before the pandemic? I'm not sure it's ever going to be quite the same. Between the blow to theater and restaurants, between the far larger number of employers who are going to have people working at home, between the risks people are going to attach to the subway uh, system, I think New York will be a great city, but maybe not with quite the same sense of dense energy that it had before. So I'm not sure we're going to see any time in the foreseeable future a return to life as it was. Not as happy a note, but thank you so much. That is Summers says from the man himself, our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. 
See you next week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.